bandwidth for changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. I'm Chris Lamb, and you're listening to The Changelog. everyone this is the change log and i'm your host adam stakoviak this is episode 237 and today we're talking to chris lamb about reproducible builds and the importance of having a verifiable path from source code to compile binary we talked about all the details of the project what it means to have reproducible builds the challenges faced when implementing these best practices and the inherent security you gain from using them we've got three sponsors today GoCD, linode and our friends at flatiron school our first sponsor of the show today is our friends at GoCD. Head to gocd.io slash changelog to learn more about this awesome open source continuous delivery server. GoCD lets you model complex workflows, promote trusted artifacts, see how your workflow really works, deploy any version anytime, run and grok your tests, compare builds, take advantage of plugins and more. Once again, head to gocd.io slash changelog to learn more. And now on to the show. Get Chris Lamb joining us today, Jared. This show is one of those shows you have to listen to mm-hmm. if you care about software security, making sure what your source code is matches the thing you actually embedded into your device or whatever you ship that binary you put out there. This came from a, a ping repo issue, though, actually presented by Chris. What do you think? Yeah, it's uh, reproducible builds is the topic of the day, and this is show was very much Chris's idea. So uh, you are you and I can't take any credit or no. any blame uh, if there is any to <laughs> assign. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. But Chris pitched this to us and uh, interesting topic and one, Chris, that you think more people should know about. So first of all, uh, thanks so much for joining us on the changelog. No problem at all. Very nice of you to have me on here. So the spirit of getting to know uh, our guests a little bit before we hop into reproducible builds and why uh, you believe they're so important. We had to get people's origin stories and kind of find out where they're coming from. So can you tell us how you got into software and uh, how you got to where you are today? Well, my software journey starts pretty early, I guess. In um, I was brought up in the UK and uh, in primary school. So I may have been around seven or eight. I started uh, experimenting with programming on the school computers. But it wasn't until a friend of my mum's was, you know, was clearing out their um, a technical guy. He was clearing out his his sort of a hacker shed of um, old equipment. And he was going to take it down to the local, um, you know, where you, you could sort of get rid of old computers and, and stuff like that. But on, on the way, he unfortunately had a small car accident and the, the computer that was on the, the passenger seat went right the way through the windscreen into the field. Police came, et cetera, et cetera. And they, uh, they, they brought all of the equipment back to his house. You know, they just put it all back in his car, you know, whatever. You know, they, he wasn't going to continue on to the um the tip as we call it for some reason anyway he, he went back and um this computer that was meant to be broken and old um he, he was this kind of person that do you know what it'd be absolutely magical if this computer now works so he plugged it in to and flipped the on switch and lo and behold for some reason this car crash had actually resurrected this computer from the dead 
And um, he, he took this to the side, so he, he couldn't throw it out then. And um, but eventually it was basically in the way of being a doorstop. So he managed to um, offload it via my mum onto me. And it was this old, extremely old 8088 IBM computer. It was dreadfully old, even for the time I got it. But um, it was basically, it had no games or anything on it. It just had a copy of Turbo Pascal. And every 10th reboot, for some reason, it would um, revert to um, basic, the basic programming language. There was a ROM built into the motherboard that, for some reason, if the main operating system didn't boot, it would revert to um, a basic environment. So um, I got some books out of the library and started programming my own, my own basic things like that. And then eventually on, on from there, really, just sort of steady stayed up, mm-hmm. moved into some Perl programming, I guess. And by university, I was programming Python a lot, um, C, C++, um, and doing, you know, the usual Java, blah, as university courses go, and things like that. After university, I um, joined a startup in London and did that for two years. We were acquired. And then because we worked, seemed to work together quite well as a team, we decided to stick together and we did a Y Combinator. And I was with that company for four years. Which one was that? This is a company called Thread.com. Thread. Um, okay. it's, it's still a going concern. Really great guys. Um, I, I just thought I sort of had enough of London by then and uh, wanted a new challenge. And this sort of freelance digital nomad lifestyle was sort of calling out to me. So I sort of jumped two feet into that. And that's what I've been doing for the last uh, couple of years, doing freelance projects, um, doing a lot of Debian work, uh, as in the operating system Debian, and uh, all sorts of really interesting, varied projects sort of all around the world, really. It's, wow. it's been really fun. Digital Nomad, that's a lot of fun. So you're... Well, it's a pretty pretentious title, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I mean, it's the dream, right? You're living yeah, the dream. Too. To travel the world and write code and or seek out your personal, you know, hobbies and fun stuff like that in all places. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it is really rewarding. Um, yeah. I can, I can recommend trying it at least one time in your life. In fact, you're calling in today uh, from New Zealand. So quite a ways. That's right. Calling from, from Auckland, New Zealand. I'm looking over a beautiful bay right now. And um, yeah, it's, it's a little chilly here, um, but um, it'll warm up. It'll warm up. And going back to that origin story of yours, yeah, I can't help but notice that you mentioned that every 10th boot went back to basic. I was just thinking, Jared, how much fun that might be to be like having a computer roulette, so to speak. Like, what will I program today because of the computer and what it will force me to do? Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, to some degree. I wonder if all computers did that like it. You, know, you boot your Mac today and it's not a Mac. It's uh, Windows <laughs> you know, or something. I don't know. That'd be great. Or it goes the other way where um, instead of reverting to basic, it's, it says, nope. Sorry today, chaps. You can only program in Haskell. Mm. No. <laughs> so origin story. That's a that's a fun piece there. What uh, what got you into open source? Where where did that happen for you? Um, somewhere along the line, I got a came across a book about Slackware Linux, and it came with a CD and things like that. And uh, this is before um, the internet was you know of any reasonable speed, and so you pretty much have to send off the Linux distributions. And all my computers were always very old, so I was never really playing, well, playing and getting being distracted by gaming and things like that. So I played around with the Slackware thing, but even that was very old. So I sent, there was a company in the UK called the Linux Emporium. And if you sent them, you know, sort of $5 worth, they'd send you, you know, the latest Red Hat CDs on a seven 
discs or something ridiculous. And I'd heard of Red Hat. Oh, you know, reputable, blah, blah, blah. I get that. They sent off for that. And they also said, oh, we could include some free extra CDs if you want. So, yeah, sure, whatever. You know, I'm 13. I have no money. So whatever. Send me as much free stuff as you like. Anyway, I went to install this Red Hat and it said, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, sir. You need at least, you need a very powerful computer. You need at least uh, um, 12 megabytes of RAM to install Red Hat. And I think I only had eight on this uh, rather rather lackluster machine. So I got a bit rather annoyed and um, so reached one of these uh, free CDs, which again were old for the time. They were free because they were the previous releases. And one of them was uh, a very old release of Debian. And it, the whole operating system there just completely clicked with me. Um, installing stuff was pretty simple, installing the operating system itself. And um, I ended up using that for many years just as a user, running my own little web server in between me and my cupboard. Just like, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> well, I didn't have the internet, so, you know, I can, uh, wow, I can, you know, type in HTTP 192.168.0.2. But what would be on your web server that you could possibly want to, like, would you uh, write up there and then read it later? Or, like, what kind of stuff would you even access to your own house? Oh, I don't really know that I wrote then because that was in my own house. You're quite right. But it was, um, I think it was copies of software I'd seen on the Internet at school. Like, I, I was mm. Perl-based um, guest books. They were all the rage at the time. That mm. might be way of aging where it was. Also, um it was the beginning time of those short URL redirectors. Mm. So this is when you had domain names like i.am. So you would uh, basically get a free redirection service like i.am, you know, your name, mm-hmm. and it would redirect you. So I was writing sort of Perl versions of those in CGI script. Mm. The good old days. Yeah, good old days. <laughs> I know you're quite a prolific open source or in terms of, well, in terms of what prolific means. You have lots of open source code you've been working on uh, Django quite a bit you've been a Debian uh, package maintainer I believe or at least involved in the Debian project since 2008 on your GitHub you have 216 repositories and 129 of those are source repositories so you actually began all of these um, yes what's the deal do you just code all day and all night or or how'd you get so many so many things going um well a lot of these things are um sort of spin-offs from the projects or perhaps from freelance work as well so some of the mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the a lot of the django tools i've done have been like well i think this would be you know in our in the code base this should be modular anyway and as it's a completely reusable component let's just remove it out there and then uh, it can become more generic abstract other people can contribute to it etc um, and it's sort of good to share back because etc etc so that that speaks to most of the django ones but the other projects a lot of them are just um, scratching my own itch, like I um I, I wanted something to um I think I was looking for um a, a new bike, and uh, there's a sort of Craigslist in London called Gumtree, and so I decided to um I knew exactly what size and what sort of make I wanted, so I made a script to um yeah, to poll it every five minutes and to send me um, an email when a particular when something that matched my specifications arrived, and so I was ringing up these people within five minutes of their uh, advert going alive oh yeah is, is the bike still available he's like I've, I've just posted it mate i don't know how did you get it so quickly so a lot of these are, are scratching my own itch um some of them people use some of them people don't use but um i find putting the code out there keeps myself honest um it also makes me um follow through on projects a little bit better 
Is there some sort of vague accountability if you're putting it on GitHub? Mm. Uh, not much, because mm-hmm. you know, no one's looking over your shoulder. <laughs> right. That's the, base, that's the basic idea, yeah. I wonder if everybody has the same, I don't know how to describe it, but like the fact that you do some freelance work or you've done freelance work you know, over your career, and instead of simply writing it into that code base that you're writing it into, you, you, know, you think in a modular way and you think about the community. I wonder if that's just like a common thought amongst developers, if that's, if that's something that like, they need to hear, something like your story. I think like I should do that too if I'm writing software for somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, if I could bake that into my, you know, my contract with them, like, hey, if there's an opportunity for me to open source a module or whatever, you know, obviously I'll disclose that to you or whatever, but baking that into the the ability to be a freelancer and actually give back to open source. So I wonder if that's just common knowledge to do that or just common things to do. I think some of it depends on maybe your attitude and your outlook. So from my own personal perspective, I've always felt like I should only like open source the things that I think are great or useful or polished or, and that always leads me to like not open source anything, you know, the or imposter like very, syndrome, basically. Yeah. It's Something. not really imposter syndrome. It's more like <sighs> values, like right. non, not non-valuable. Like, it's not like I don't belong here. It's just like who would ever want to use this? But, um, that's imposter syndrome. I don't know if it is. It doesn't really feel like it's an edge case of it. I don't belong here. It's just like, you know, this is maybe I just code for myself. So just to compare with you, Chris, just the other day, I was writing a little script that you had your bike script that would like check the, you know, check for you every five minutes. That was very similar. Only it's like a cigar bidding website. Anyways, I like cigars. And so <laughs> I'm just writing this thing, you know, uh, that's just helping me get cigars at good prices. And mm-hmm. like, I never even thought once to open source that. Like, it'll probably never leave my hard drive. But you, on the other hand, you're like, oh, I'm going to put this up on GitHub. Yeah. I think it also immediately solves the where do I put this file as well. <laughs> Good point. I mean, Good like, point. like do, do I lose it in my directory, uh, like random directory structure? But if it's on GitHub, then yeah. it's kind of a backup, right? You know, if you squint, it's a backup. Right. I hear yeah. you say, Jared, it's on my hard drive where like if your hard drive dies today, uh, Chris's you know, GitHub hard drive does not. Right. And even if maybe somebody doesn't find it useful or even desire to watch it or fork it or whatever or contribute, you know, it's still yet. It's like Chris said, there's a backup there. And worst case, scenario, yeah. somebody else is like, hey, that's a really awesome idea. I love cigars, too. And now you've got a new buddy. Yeah, sure. And also, like, it's a generally like, you know, it uses a mechanized library and it, it logs in. And it does a few things where if you would like to automate some things on the web, you could look at that little script that to me doesn't seem of much value. And you could say, hmm, here's how you might do that. and you could tweak it to your own uses similar to maybe I could take your bike script and apply it to tricycles or something. Um, I don't know why I came up with that example, but <laughs> so now I'm talking myself into, I should open source some more stuff. Basically we should all just be, but aren't we like somehow we're just maybe like heaving crap out there for other people to sift through, you know, like adding more noise to the, to the ecosystem. I think there's levels to open source, right? There's like infrastructure open source, which is like in quotes, important you know, and useful. Right. And then there's other things that are sort of like uh, tinker tools that sort of just embrace the inner kid in us, the, the playful manner. And there's a side of that playful manner that helps you get into the state of flow and helps you go beyond just like simply learning. And it's like, right now you actually, you know, absorb what you're doing. And so it kind of brings out these different attitudes and, and the developer behind the code and those who interact with it. So I think there's room for that. I don't think there's, I don't think, it should all just be so serious. 
Sure. I think, and in fact, uh, shout out to Cody Peterson, who was uh, our designer on changelog.com, you front ender. Um, he, he has this idea, which is, I'm sure everybody's had this idea, but he brought it to my attention of like, GitHub should have tags, arbitrary tags that you can assign to your own repos in order to provide context. Like you could tag something satire if it's a joke, or you could say, you know, this is a one-off, or you could have all these different tags that would basically say like, look, this was me messing around. It's not a serious project, you know, or you could tag it like serious, you know, the problem with tags is they're so arbitrary. Point being is like, if we could classify our, our repos a little bit better in public, it might help. What do you guys think about that? I think that'd be really good because then I think a lot of people wouldn't be making these uh, decisions about that gray area of, well, shall I put it up there? It's probably not going to be useful. They, they just put it up there by default, not having to think about it, mm -hmm. but just shove one of your uh, tags on it saying, yeah, this is a bit of a, a toy, you know, yeah. probably doesn't even work. Right. Um, it's broken now or but. It certainly has like more value out there than being on your hard drive. Then it'll eventually die and you'll get lost. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's uh, let's get into reproducible builds. So give us the, uh, I want to call it an elevator pitch because it's not a business, but it's a concept. It's a best practice. It's something that, Chris, you think uh, people should know about and do. It's also something you've been giving uh, sessions on. You spoke at LinuxConf uh, in Australia recently which is kind of why you're in the New Zealand area. So give us real quickly an understanding of what Reproducible Builds is, and then we'll come back from the break and we'll dive into it. Sure. So um, Reproducible Builds are um, a set of uh, practices and philosophy, and it's all, all designed around to ensure that there's a verifiable path from the source code and the binaries that are being run in your machine. So if you get... Um, the basic problem is that Whilst you can inspect the source code of free software, most Linux distributions, Android, etc., provide pre-compiled binary packages. And so you, you need a, a way of being able to correlate the binary that's being run on your machine with the original source code. And this is particularly important in uh, the modern era because there's incentives to crack build infrastructure. Mm. Um, if you want to, you can go after a lot of users by attacking the developers and um, if you can get a, a, some malware into a developer's machine, you can infect all of their users in one go. I never really considered that part of it, Jerry, when we were doing the pre-calls, like the, the attack on the actual developers. Yeah. I was thinking just simply source code in the binary that gets put on whatever and runs and how that gets circumvented, not the developer's machine or themselves. Indeed. And there's a the psychological angle to that as well. I mean, you can, uh, I could hack someone's a developer's laptop, for example without their knowledge. But also I could um, come around their house with a baseball bat. I mean, it's pretty crude, but uh, you know, please include this uh, backdoor in your software or uh, blackmail and things like that. Mm. So all, all of these things are uh, protect developers from that happening. So it's, they'll be of, it'll be of no value to threaten a developer with such things because anything they would do would be caught by the rest of the community. Well, let's push the pause button real quick. And on the other side of the break, we'll talk more about reproducible builds, why they're important, who's working on them, and what Chris thinks everybody should know and take away. So we'll be right back. We're working closely with our friends at Flatiron School to promote their free online courses. They've got Bootcamp Prep, Intro to Ruby, Intro to JavaScript, and also Intro to Swift and iOS. 
In this segment, I'm talking with Kaylee Gray, an alumni of Flatiron School who started with their free Intro to Ruby course, then she enrolled in their online web developer program, and now she's working full-time at FBS Data Systems as a developer in Fargo, North Dakota. Take a listen to Kaylee's story. I studied math primarily in undergrad, but I was also a computer science minor. So I've had exposure to programming, but before Flatiron, I was pretty timid as far as programming goes. I definitely didn't have much confidence in that arena. After Flatiron's Intro to Ruby course, I felt more confident in my ability to pursue programming as a full-time career. One of the things that I liked about Flatiron's Intro to Ruby course was that I was forced to use the terminal, which up to this point had been daunting to me. So it was really empowering to feel like I could go in and make these changes and, and program these things that I didn't really know I could do. If you're like me and you're curious about programming, but you're feeling a little unsure that it's something that you can do, you can try Flatiron for free and see if it's right for you. And, and you'll probably like it because <laughs> it's great. All right, there's nothing I love more than a success story, and Kaylee is an awesome example. You can follow in her footsteps. Head to flatiron500.com to learn more and enroll. These courses are totally free to enroll. The bootcamp prep course is only available to 500 students. So if you're considering this, do it today. Once again, head to flatiron500.com to learn more and enroll and tell them the changelog sent you. All right, we are back with Chris Lamb talking about reproducible bills. And Chris, we gave it a definition before the break. Like we said in the intro, you opened up this idea of saying more people need to understand this as something that's important for various reasons. Can you reiterate a little bit exactly what reproducible builds is and then again, why they're so important and we'll kind of dive in from there. Sure, no problem. So this isn't about um, reliable builds or repeatable builds or um, or anything along the, those kind of lines. It's really about ensuring that there is this um, connection between the, a, a user or developer can confirm that the binaries that they're running on their system correspond to the source code they're expecting to be run on their computer. So if you kind of wind history back to the sort of uh, Richard Stallman's early ideas about uh, being able to run software on your own computer, whilst you can get the source code for you know or, or a free software operating system and, and et cetera, most of these distributions are providing binary packages to you that um, are being compiled by someone else or different build farms. And it's really important that uh, no um, inadvertent, malevolent or accidental changes have been introduced during that code path. There was an example um, given a few years ago of an open SSH binary that differed just by one bit of one byte, which changed a, a greater than or less than comparison to a um, mm just a greater than. And just that one bit meant that you could have a root exploit. Uh, but so the, the difference is, I mean, if you ran them through a, a, a diff tool, you'd only see that one byte change, that one bit change. Um, yet the one would be secure and one would be, well, hopefully secure. One would be hopelessly insecure with that root, with the backdoor in, and uh, one would be hopefully a little bit more secure. So reproducible builds prevent these these changes being added behind your back as a as a user so at what level does the reproducible build take place is it like 
you know, it, you got your list of who's involved and that involves various levels of Linux, Bitcoin, things like that. Is it us trusting them to say they adhere to reproducible builds and that's what gives us faith and trust? Or is it is it a different level? It's, I think it's on a different level. It's sort of a, a kind of community set of tool practices and things like that. If you jump into the details, what's um, perhaps reproducible builds is a um, can be quite a misleading term. I mean, code provenance might be a, a better way of phrasing it and things like that. The way we use the reproducibility is that um, we ensure that compilation of any piece of software always has identical results. So that means um, if you can, you know, you run GCC on a, on a, a C file, you get an ELF binary at the end of it. And if you reran that uh, compilation process, you'd get the exact same ELF binary. You know, the MD5, the SHA-1 checksum would be just identical. Then what happens is that you ask multiple other parties to do their own builds of this same source code. And then you get together, um, hopefully electronically, and uh, compare your results. So if I got results, you know, one, two, three, four, uh, assuming that's the checksum, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, you got one, two, three, four, and everyone else got one, two, three, four, we can pretty much agree that if you compile this source code, you should expect this binary. And if someone come, came along saying, oh, I get one, two, three, five, you would have an inkling that something was different about his build environment. Um, he could have been hacked. He could have something uh, breaking his compiler and things like that. But basically, there's just something fishy going on that's, that warrants further investigation. So that's where the, the reproducibility comes from. So the ensuring that everyone gets the same result is where the word reproduce comes in. So if someone can reproduce your build, sure. that's, that's where the, um, that verb gets added there. Isn't, hasn't it been for a very long time that when you know, package managers or anybody who's pre-compiling binaries and releasing them publishes their checksums alongside the downloads so that you can download the file and then run your checksum and make sure it matches theirs. Isn't that, is that basically what you're talking about? Or this is just another level of saying, okay, well, that was two computers. You know, we're going to do it on, you know, thousands and make sure that it's always the same. It's, it's, yes, pretty much. I mean, I think the, um, when a developer has a checksum extra file, what they're, what they're trying to do, if it's just a, a SHA-1 checksum, for example, mm -hmm. that's typically only to ensure that to an end user can um, validate whether the, the download completed successfully. So for a very large um, ISO image, it's very useful to, to say, oh, yes, it did download correctly. So that's a, I think that's a different intention there. But you're right. I mean, if you had um, 100 different checksums that people have provided, it is pretty much like that. So I built this piece of software and I got this checksum. And then it, multiple people did the same thing. Um, it doesn't provide uh, any um, authenticity. So uh, you would need to pair that checksum with, say, for example, a GPG or PGP signature you know, to sign that binary to say that I, Chris Lamb, generated this binary. See what I mean? So you need to be very wary about what this checksums are um, actually claiming about the source code. Yeah, and, and just to explain it, and you can help me if I don't have it correct, but I think I'll lay out in terms of the checksumming. You know, a checksum is a one-way hash that's run on the binary. That's right, yeah. It'll always produce the exact same fingerprint on the other side. The problem with that, especially as cryptographic algorithms get uh, torn down over time, is that while that exact same binary will always produce the exact same checksum, Depending on your algorithm, there are other binaries that can also produce that 
exact same checksum. And so that we call them hash collisions. And so that's why it's not giving you the level of confidence that it's secure. It's simply a tool that you can use, like you said, to say, okay, I did get the file all the way downloaded, it's not corrupted or or there's no issues. That's right. Um, so while people think that those those checksums are like giving us some sort of security confidence, they actually aren't. Hmm. Is that fair? That would be fair, yes. You can you can immediately make them a little more secure by providing multiple checksums. So particularly from different families of cryptographic algorithms. Uh, so I mean the the advice for years has been to stop using MD5 um, right. and things like that. And if you provide multiple SHA-1, SHA-256 checksums, you can start to be pretty confident that your download completed successfully and things like that. Mm-hmm. So give us, like the, give us the doomsday scenario where you know, we all go away from this conversation thinking, well, Chris has an interesting point about this reproducible builds thing, but I'm not convinced. I'm, I don't care. And so us as a community don't care. Um, we know that's not the case because we have like the core infrastructure initiative is supporting this and lots of distributions and a lot of people do care. But let's say that we just don't get it done and we don't have reproducible builds. What's the worst thing that could possibly happen in terms of hacks or security problems or, you know, you, use your imagination if we can't have this guarantee? Well, one advantage is I don't have to use my imagination. Some of them have already happened, although in, in small isolation. So, for example, someone used social engineering to offer a, a backdoored iOS um, software developer kit for download. Uh, maybe they bought a, a Google ad you know, that looked like the download link, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. So a whole bunch of developers downloaded this, and it worked completely like the, uh, the, the normal iOS SDK, except it would replace um, their adverts, uh, as in any adverts on the, um, that the developer added, with the attacker's adverts. And the idea was to, to just to make money, really. And so these developers in their um, making um, their iOS apps were happily making them brilliant, you know, fine. And then they went to upload them to the Apple um, store and they signed them. And, and so the signing process was completely accepted. You know, Apple said, yes, this, this is you. The, the signing uh, stuff checks out absolutely fine. But because their software development kit was backdoored, at the very last moment, it would just simply replace the adverts with the ones from the attacker. And they only really noticed when they weren't really getting any ad revenue back. But you can imagine, quickly imagine what would happen if the code wasn't necessarily to just replace adverts, which sort of sounds a little bit harmful, mm-hmm. uh, harmless, should I say, ignoring the economic blah of it. But what if it was sending your address book or things like that? The original developer would swear blind they're doing nothing wrong. And from their point of view, they are innocent apart from perhaps some rather lackadaisical security on their part. But you wouldn't really know who to point the finger at. And so that's pretty much the the sort of worst case where you have no idea who these attackers are. You have no idea where the software is going. It sort of seems to bypass a lot of security features that we put in place, like the signing, which is entirely designed to prevent arbitrary code being uploaded to these repositories and things like that. So yeah, that's that's pretty much um, the doomsday scenario. Mm. Another thing that um, makes reproducible builds quite salient in modern times is that some of the um, Snowden revelations refer to um, using backdoored compilers in a similar way in order to um, infect machines and things like that. This is something that the NSA or have been well, we we know for certain they've been looking at it um, because of the um, 
some documents released via um, Edward Snowden. Mm. So, so yes, I mean, the, the, the doomsday is sort of a, is sort of here already in a sense, but we just don't really know how pervasive it is. Yeah. Um, and things like that. Yeah. It is particularly insidious that you're not, you know, coercing. You're, you don't have a bad actor. The developer doesn't have to be the bad actor if you can infect the developer tools or the developer, you know, pipeline in any way. And and then when the point that the attack is successful, uh, like you said, it's very difficult to trace back to the original threat vector when the developer is ignorant of anything going wrong. Yeah. And they're usually the one to blame. That's an interesting story, though, that you can do that with you know the iOS SDK and do something like you had said so harmless, but it could have been something so harmful, mm-hmm. like an address book or bigger exploits or whatever. But that actually takes place. But we all day to day utilize some sort of software, whether it's open source or not, in a way where we just sort of like inherently trust it. I don't know how often either of you do MD5 hashes or any of this thing that you could do to to sort of like determine if it's truly what you should be using. How often do you do you do this, Jared? Like is this something you do day to day or how often do you check the software you're actually running? So I used to use the checksums when I would like Chris said, when I would download a large file. Um, I, and I used to, I used to do it thinking it was a security thing. So a lot of people believe that. And then so it's a little bit of a misunderstanding is to think, oh, I'm more secure because I do this step. Right. And, um, by the way, the other problem with that step of I'm going to download a file from this web page and then I'm going to run the checksum to make sure it's the, the same is that if a hacker actually hacked the web server insofar as they could replace the binary that you're downloading, right. they also could have very easily changed the checksum to match that binary of the right. So. It's completely not a security thing, even though I used to think it was for a long time. And so that's that's more when I used to do it. But also back in the days where, you know, a 600 meg uh, Debian ISO was like an all day download. You wanted to make sure that it worked right. And so I would do it back then. But I don't do anything. I'm very security lax, sadly, in my current. Uh, well, how much binary code are you running these days that where you would check it? Like how often are you either of you using anything that's binary where this plays into where you take a source code down to one file or something like that. Well, I mean, anything that you nowadays homebrew has a lot of precompiled binaries. Right. And I'm, I assume homebrew has uh, some built in, you know, I know there's some certificate checks and stuff going on there. Uh, Chris, you can probably talk to Debian's process since you're involved in the Debian package maintenance, but what kind of security is in place around package managers where people are precompiling binaries and then, you know, we're downloading them and using them. The, the Debian and uh, by extension Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mint, et cetera, they um, use um, internally, they use GPG and signing. Mm-hmm. So there's, a, um, there's a, a known web of trust. So whilst it does validate the checksums of the, the files when it downloads them, that's simply for integrity. In other words, has the download completed successfully. But there's an additional step which is documented if you I think if you search for apt secure, there's a quite interesting wiki page on the Debian wiki about it. In in a nutshell, it basically uses GPG signatures and a key ring of trusted keys to say, ah, oh, okay, the checksum of this file is X and we have a, a valid signature that's in the key ring. So therefore we can trust this file uh, to that degree. You see what I mean? Yeah. Whilst you're completely right. So that prevents your your example of the attacker being able to get into one of the many Debian errors and replacing both the checksum and the, the binary that would fail because they would not be able to forge the signature the the extra step 
Right. So there's that. And then if we, if we go into like the Apple side of things with the iOS, you know, App Store and whatnot, those are all developer uh, signed. Uh, you have to have your own certificate and sign your binaries before Apple will accept those in. And there's a web of trust that they create in there as well. So there are things that are in place, but what you're advocating for with reproducible builds is even more guarantees, not just that these binaries are trusted, but that the, we can verify their origin, the source code that originated them in a reproducible way. That's right. That, that's a good summary because whilst you could have a, I could, we, using the checksum and the signature, I know that I've got this binary from, say, you, and it's like, brilliant, I know exactly who I've got it from. Um, there's no guarantee that that corresponds to any particular source code that you claim it belongs to. I have to take your word for it. Mm. You have to actually trust me. Yes, for that sense, yeah, yeah. With the reproducible build setup, you could provide the source code in that binary, and I could not only compile it myself to say, yeah, okay, it does check out. I can also ask multiple third parties to perform that same step, and then, then I can start to trust you and be saying, yes, um, this checksum with this signature does correspond to this particular source code. Yeah. So it's sort of extending that one level back. Right. So you gave it to us before, but now that we've, I feel like we've kind of wrapped our heads around it a little bit more, explain it to us again in terms of the process. So reproducible builds is not like a feature that you checkbox. It's, it's a set of practices that you can operate under as a development community, right? That gives you this verifiable path back to the original source code. Describe it to us again, the steps that get put in place before we can say, you know what, this is verifiably reproducible sure so the steps are the first step is you ensure that your source code always produces the same result in a bit for bit identical way uh, so this is removing any timestamps, any um, variations based on your time zone that you're in any any non-deterministic behavior any randomness and things like that basically so if anyone took the same source code and recompiled it themselves they would get the exact same binary out that was completely bit for bit identical. Then you um, ask multiple parties or multiple, you know, build servers or, um, you know, or distributed around the web at different isolated environments, perhaps, to, to, to compile that same source code. And if they get the same result, if everyone gets the same result and that same binary that you got, then you can start to say that, oh, yes, this, this binary here corresponds with the original source code. And therefore, you can make this claim that um, as, no, as it's very unlikely that an attacker was infected everyone simultaneously, that this really is the binary you get when you compile the source code. There isn't um, any nefarious goings on and nothing has been introduced along the development tool chain. If you see what I mean. So who all is involved in this process? Um, we mentioned it before, but you've been awarded a grant from the Core Infrastructure Initiative to work on reproducible builds. Is this something that the Free Software Foundation is working on? Is it the Linux Foundation? Is it Debian? Uh, give us a lay of the land on like, what actors think this is important or are actually putting efforts towards putting these systems in place for a lot of our underlying operating systems and other things. Well, it's, it's quite a diverse group of projects, really. I mean, there's, um, you can find some old mailing list posts about people sort of attempting this in the, uh, the mid-90s. But um, it wasn't really in anyone's, on anyone's radar as a security vector for a while. 
And after the um, the Snowden revelations and the um, the iOS, etc., a lot of people started getting interested in it. Uh, Debian was perhaps the forefront of the distributions, um, and certainly putting a lot of the initial activity into reproducible builds. But now we're um, a completely distribution and project agnostic initiative and, and endeavor. It's the, the Linux Foundation that, that are very generously funding my time and others' time on to work on this. But there's all sorts of distributions involved now. Um, we've got SUSE, Fedora, uh, Geeks, a bunch of BSDs as well. So it's not, it's not even a, um, a Linux-only um, operating system of Arch Linux. But we also have projects such as, um, as Bitcoin and Tor. I mean, you can imagine the incentive to crack the binary of a, a Bitcoin wallet. Mm-hmm. If you could upload a, um, a backdoored Bitcoin wallet and replace the developer's version, then you would become rich fairly quickly. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's my plan. That's your plan. That's your retirement fund. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't even know why you're saying this. I mean, you're telling everybody my plan. It's, 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 I'm just going to skim a little bit just a little. off of everybody's Bitcoin wallets and, and become rich. Yeah. Just a fraction of a, of a cent every transaction. Yes, sir. They'll never notice. Yep. You know? But it's pretty scary. I mean, to go back to the, the psychology earlier, I mean, imagine being that developer. You're sitting at home, you know, how much money could you make by um, adding a backdoor to that um, Bitcoin wallet? How much would it cost to hire a bunch of heavies to go around of his house? Uh, I think the economics would work out. The moral economics perhaps wouldn't. But uh, just in terms of money, just, yeah, very scary. So I, if I was that PP person, I wouldn't want to put myself in that situation. I wouldn't want to put myself at risk for being targeted in that way. Before we go into the break, I want to ask maybe a hypothetical. Maybe I'm just being naive when asking this, but because I don't do this too often, but it sounds like reproducible builds is a philosophy and a set of best practices that enables you to verify this binary from a source. And often we have the option to, you know, pull down a compiled version or a pre-compiled version of whatever we're using. Why not just opt to compile yourself? And that essentially, you know, if you're compiling from source, you're essentially doing the same thing as reproducible builds. Like we are actually. That's right. It's, you know what I mean? I mean, it's still a con- absolutely, but it's a convenience factor. Um, right. People don't do that too often. No. And um, Gentoo users would, would disagree, right? They would. They would disagree, but they would disagree on many things. Uh, <laughs> much love Gentoo users. Uh, but I mean, for example, do you really expect your, your phone to uh, compile the software before installation? I mean, I wouldn't want my phone to have to sit there and compile Chrome before it gets installed, for example. That would be a little bit a little bit inconvenient. I'm thinking more at the developer level. And drain your battery, Adam. Yeah, I'm not thinking like at the end user level they're going to do that because that's just too much to ask any user to do. I'm thinking like at the developer level. You know, maybe maybe I'm closed-minded and only thinking of this in one lens. But so far, the the serious the concern here had been like uh, installing a you know a Linux version or iOS SDK. I was just trying to play the devil's advocate of why would you just not compile yourself? I guess if it's a developer tool. Yeah, I think convenience is is a huge aspect of that. I don't know when it was, but uh, coming from the Mac side, you know, Adam, like I said, Homebrew now has pre-compiled binaries for lots of packages that you install often. And so if you have to compile Postgres from source every single time you have a point update, you know, that could take, depending on your machine, it could take 10 minutes, it could take 40 minutes, who knows? Right. Uh, and so if you have every single piece of software that you run, you're going to compile from source, 
does that how far does that go do i also have to configure it myself and make sure i've actually configured it correctly i think there's a huge inconvenience there well we it may be missing a bigger picture here in that the security affordances that um reproducible builds provide should apply to everyone really uh, to all users of on, on any um, technical spectrum so they don't want their um, to-do list app and things like that that they're just using as a, a thingy to be to have any backdoors in well i think the bigger picture there is just trying to figure out you know i'm just thinking if i'm a developer and i'm going to use something that has a binary why not just compile it myself and of the arguments you've made there of the conveniences and affordances and you know, if i'm going to every point release a postgres i'm going to recompile a new version of it that's probably a big pain in the butt i'm just trying to figure out i guess if is reproducible builds this philosophy this best practices is it is it enabling me as a developer to have the ability to reproduce it if i wanted to and that's the security or is it absolutely okay yes. so if i wanted to take the the convenience hit to actually compile it myself i could to prove that what i've gotten is coming from the source indeed and um what our goal is in the reproducible builds project is that there are enough people that out there already building the software that you can simply rely on those people to provide you with a checksum that has consensus across say 20 or 30 different people and so you would never really have to rebuild anything yourself because right. all of these 30 other people agree that the binary should be x you also have binary x i'm happy with that that's fine for me and things like that and that also speaks to the end users as well. So they don't have to compile software themselves necessarily, and if they want to, but if they just want to install random app on their phone, you know, some sort of to-do list, for example, um, they can trust that the 30 or 40 rebuilders, as we might call them, um, agree on a particular checksum. And as they've got that same checksum, they're happy installing that and saying, okay, cool. The binary I've got corresponds with this source code. There isn't any nefarious, nasty stuff being added somewhere in the mix along the line. You've certainly given me a, a speckle of fear when it comes to installing potentially nefarious apps in the App Store. Because like, there are times I want to use an application in, an, in a genre, like, for example, recently like with, with music or something like that. I'm just like, I don't know if I should trust any of these people because I don't know any of the brands. They, the design isn't that great. So like, there's some known trust factors you sort of apply to potentially trustworthy software mm. and that doesn't exactly define security or trust like by its look but it certainly helps it if you care enough about its design that that it's uh trustworthy but you know just in general you've given me this slight fear that somebody out there is using a hacked version of ios that's replacing ads and or stealing my data and and now i have complete fear but let's let's break that let's not open that can of worms my fear is out there the world knows about it let's break when we come back we'll talk about uh other advantages beyond security things like that so we'll break here we come back we'll go into that with chris we'll right back linode is our cloud server of choice everything we do runs on linode servers the most efficient ssd cloud servers on the market and you can get your own linode cloud server up and running in seconds with your choice of linux distro resources, and node location. They've got eight data centers all across the world, North America, Europe, Asia Pacific, and plans start at just 10 bucks a month. You get full root access for more control, run VMs, run containers, a private Git server, 
enjoy native SSD cloud storage, a 40 gigabit network, Intel E5 processor, super fast. Use the code CHANGELAW2017 for a $20 credit. Unlimited uses, tell your friends. Once again, CHANGELAW2017, head to linode.com slash changelog. And now back to the show. All right, we're back with Chris Lamb talking about this awesome thing called reproducible builds. You need it to have secure software and maybe it's just a pain in the butt to compile from source. As I learned that today, it can't do that every day. But Chris, take us to some other advantages. I mean, obviously you got some security advantages here. Where else should we go for this to help explain to the community why this is so important? The, uh, I think the biggest non-security um, advantage is given that every time you rebuild the software, you should get the same result. It means that if you make a tiny change to the source code, you should expect there should be a result in the, in the resulting binary. And only those changes should be apparent in there. You want to do a new release of software and you want to make sure that this new release only contains the changes that you want. Reproducible builds make it very easy to analyze that the, the, your new version with the previous version. And um, if you compare them, you should only see the changes that you expect. Uh, we've even written a uh, very good tool for this called Differscope, which can uh, recursively unpack binaries and things like that and look inside them and uh, provide a human readable view on uh, a particular binary. And if, for example, it will decompile Java files and things like that and pretty print Python source code and JavaScript source code and things like that, which makes it very easy to say, OK, I've released a bug fix release for this particular thing. And only the changes I expect are in this new release. So that's fine. I'm happy to push it out. Now, this is a massive boon for anyone doing security releases, for example. But it's also just if you just want to have really good um, quality assurance, you want, to, you want to ship something to your users. You don't want to have any inadvertent changes like, oh, yeah, it pulled in this extra dependency. Whoops. And now it's broken everything. Oh, yeah, so sorry. If you just change one line of code, you should kind of just see that reflected in the resulting binary. Oh. The other um, advantage when things always build to the same result is that you just by design, you get better cash hit ratio. When you speak to the guys at Google about this, um, they, they're saying this is saving them thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars simply because when they compile a large piece of software, um, many parts of it haven't changed. And as they're reproducible, they will always produce the same result. And so therefore, it just says, well, there's nothing, to, there's nothing new to compile. So therefore, there's, I don't need to do anything. So you can reuse the previous result. So this is not, not only saves developer time, it's saving the company money, but also it's saving um, the environment in a sense, because you're not you know, wasting CPU cycles um, and generating CO2 and things like that. Further technical advantages are, by design, it removes any unreliable or non-deterministic behavior in the development process. So if you want to get the same result, your build can't rely on anything that based on timing. So any um, quote unquote unit tests that do, for example, using time to, to check whether something should run in a particular speed or uh, in a particular ratio of inputs to output time, algorithmic complexities, as it were, that becomes unreliable and therefore non-deterministic and therefore can't be part of a, um, a, not a reproducible build and things like that. Mm. It's a good way of finding bugs in uncommon time zones and locales. So the two or three times I've come across it, it's been Ruby libraries. So I'm not sure. But um, a, a few 
are Ruby libraries that have been designed to manipulate dates and times. Um, their test suite fails when you run it in, for example, UTC plus 14, mm. which should be, should be a little worrying because, you know, this is a, a, a library that the developer is, might be using to say, okay, I, I know time zones are difficult and date processing is difficult. So I'm going to, I'm going to leave it to this library and uh, the library, it doesn't actually work in these strange locales and things like that. How would the reproducible builds help you track down that spe- specific time zone-based bugs then? So within the Debian project, we have a, um, a reproducible torture chamber test. So what we do is we build every piece of software in Debian, and there's 23,000 different source packages there. Give you a scale of what we're talking about. We build it um, one, uh, build it twice, one after the other, uh, the A build and the B build. And we try and vary as many things between those two builds as possible. So for example, uh, the second build will be on a, um, a different CPU type. It'll be done um, a few years in the future. We just set a fake time and things like that. Mm. We uh, change the shell. We change the, uh, the path environment. We change, change all the environment variables we can possibly change. Uh, your username, anything we can think we change the file system, basically anything you think of, we try and change. And this um, hopefully surfaces as many differences that would affect reproducibility. So we want to make sure that any end user can compile a software on their own machine, regardless of their own local environment and get the same result. And so this is a way of reducing the, the set of variations that would actually result in a variation in the end binary. And this also shows up some of these QA advantages as well. I mean, wouldn't that, that would help us out compile time differences, but what about runtime? Like I'm thinking, I'm thinking about like things that are JIT compiled, like Ruby, for instance. Like how does it suss out those problems if you're packaging Ruby things? Uh, you're quite right. Um, as they're JIT compiled, the, what gets distributed then is the Ruby source code. So although it's a little, um, you have to squint, the binary for a Ruby package is actually um, still, you know, sort of text-based Ruby code and things like that. Right. Say, saying that, that, it can still surface interesting um, things. And uh, just on this one happens to be a security, but if there was a, a repository browsing tool that had an open ID-based login system, and during the build process of it, it was generating a um, open ID secret. You know how it's based on a um, a secret that the private that the server knows about, mm-hmm. and it uses um, public keying, you know, Diffie-Hellman, et cetera, style um, cryptographic algorithm to, to validate logins are secure. So during the build, it would generate a random number, and that would get put into the binary package. Unfortunately, this meant that every installation of this um, browsing tool would share the same secret. Yikes. Because, yes. Um, this was surfaced in, in our QA torture environment because um, in the in the A build it would generate secret one two three four, and in the B build it would generate the secret you know one nine four three or whatever, and uh, we would flag that up as oh it's different between the A and B builds what is different ah it's some sort of secret key oh dear this should not be the same for all the packages that get built. You guys have a reproducible build torture chamber that sounds terrible that sounds I like the name. <laughs> it definitely conjures uh, thoughts of visualizations. Probably, it sounds like it's well named. If you're definitely changing so many things, you're putting it through, you know, torturous things. 
thinking about how do you like so this is you this is the debian project you guys have a great setup you put put time and, and money into this how do other people do it like there's a set of best practices is you, you you've described the process which seems relatively straightforward there's a few steps but tactically how do you go ahead and say you know what uh, our group is interested in reproducible builds how do we get from where we are to where we want to be a lot of the work is being done with liaising with um, compilers and other tool chain based utilities that are introducing non-reproducibility. So we speak a lot with the uh, GCC developers. For example, we had uh, C developers will know the underscore underscore date and underscore underscore time uh, macros, C preprocessor macros. And previously they embedded the date and time directly into the source code as, as macros. This affects reproducibility because obviously every time you rebuilt it, it would put the current time in. And so therefore, every single time you would build, you get a different binary. So a lot of the time we are speaking to developers in those kind of areas rather than developers of, shall I call them leaf packages, uh, you know, sort of ones that depend on other packages rather than where packages are depending on them. Uh, Documentation generators are another example of upstreams that we're speaking to quite a bit. In terms of just getting the word out about the potential problems of a world where we can't trust the binaries that are running on our own computers, that's a lot of what we do. And and, and talking about the problems and talking about the doomsday scenarios as we outlined before. Mm-hmm. So we've outlined a little bit who's involved, and you mentioned you know all these different projects doing it, uh, working hard on this Arch Linux, Bitcoin, Debian, FreeBSD, NetBSD, so on and so forth. Tor. Who's not involved that should be, you know, if you could get their ear and say, you know, you guys need to be doing reproducible builds and here's why. What are some groups or some people or some companies that should be, you know, doing these things? And as far as your knowledge is that they aren't. Well, uh, one thing we, we know they aren't in that um, basically as sort of people outside of the free software space. I mean, for example, what made the recent Volkswagen emission scandal possible is software that has been designed to lie about the sensors in the in a lab environment. If you had the source code under public scrutiny, sure, adding some sort of misfeatures would have made that sort of impossible. I mean, without reproducible builds, it's hard to confirm that the binary code installed in the car was actually made during the source code that had been verified. If you know what I mean. Well, you, nobody has access to the source code, anyways, right? So. Well, yes, that should be another. That's a, a sort of. <laughs> so anybody who has proprietary source code, there's they're not going to be doing reproducible builds as far as a uh, public community has access to them because their their source code's private anyway. Yeah, that's true. But we uh, because of things like the emission scandal and things like that, we may see uh, more legal based. Yeah, mandatory uh, requirements for mm. these things to be. Yeah, and then even if someone did provide the source code for a piece of software and along with the binary, you know, in other words, your car we would still need to be able to verify that one came from the other. Well, you would think the EPA might step in there, Jerry, where it, you know, general public may not have access to source code, but maybe because of this emission scandal, maybe a new law or something is put into place where yeah. the EPA has to have access to the original source code to produce a reproducible build to confirm that the software installed in the car matches the, you know, the result they got from source. I mean, that's a possibility there rather than saying, sure, you know, open the code up to the world because it is proprietary. Maybe certain security levels might have to be in place. And that just means bigger government. So different podcast altogether. 
<laughs> something I wanted to ask. Maybe it's we're talking about who should be involved, but I was I was thinking maybe I was almost going to interrupt you, Jared. But maybe now that I have the chair here, I can ask it. Going back to the example originally with the iOS developer who got circumvented and pulled down the wrong version of the iOS SDK, what could that person have done differently to prevent them using a scrutinized iOS SDK? Well, one, they could have, I mean, the obvious things of ensuring that um, they download it from a reputable source. Assuming that um, Apple are not going to release the source code for the SDK, which is probably a given, there's very little they can do. And that's basically the quote-unquote risk you take when you when you run proprietary software what hopefully would have happened is that if they were in a free software world and they released the source code for their software it had been very obvious and very quickly that the binaries that they were producing did not match with their source code because and they would never have matched because of the way that their sdk was introducing the change of adverts and things like that mm-hmm. so Hopefully, very very quickly, um, when when a third party recompiled their piece of software, they would say, mm, "That's interesting. You're distributing checksum A B C D, uh, but when I compile it myself, I get D E F G. What's going on here?" Um, and questions would be raised very early and things like that. So, in the case of this SDK, they pulled down iOS SDK, downloaded from a reputable source, which seems to be a logical first step. Um, but let's say they didn't. But since it's proprietary code, they can't essentially leverage, the, you know, this uh, best practices of reproducible bills because they don't have access to the source code, and they can't confirm that. Indeed, yeah. So they're screwed, basically. <laughs> yeah, they're forced to use this nefarious version because they downloaded it from somebody's hijacked website, not Apple.com/slash/developers or something like that. Mm-hmm. Back to who should be involved, because I, I had that thought in my head, but I didn't want to go too farther, but uh, I do want to get back to who's involved. So we've got a list here. I think the URL is reproducible-builds.org slash who, and you can go in there and see everybody involved. And Jerry's question was like, specifically, who's not involved in this that should be involved in this? Well, I wouldn't want to em- embarrass anyone in particular. Oh, come but, on. Um, uh, well, maybe well, it's not an embarrassment. It's just more like a call to arms. <laughs> Get in cool the pool. Yeah, convince them. Get in the don't, pool. don't embarrass them. Convince them. So, so someone who's not really represented um, here is um, Ubuntu, and they do have um, use their large um, installation base. That would obviously be great leverage, and would provide a lot of uh, reassurance to a lot of users if if Ubuntu got involved. We have actually spoken to them, and they are kind of waiting to see whether the Debian toolchain, etc kind of settles down because it's a little bit in flux at the moment. So they have no philosophical objection to it. It's just not on their radar right at this second. But hopefully that will change in the next three or four months. And um, we'll start to see some of the Debian reproducible builds work trickle down into Ubuntu, like mm-hmm. a lot of the other work that's um, shared between those two projects. So I think that would be the main one that's um, missing in terms of user leverage. In terms of um, people who don't really care about it. I guess anyone in proprietary software can't care about it because they, <laughs> yeah. as you, as I mean, it doesn't really work if you don't have forced to at least. Yeah, indeed. So I can't really speak to them. I mean, it'd be nice if more windows developers had that kind of mindset and things like that, but there's still a lot of free software that's being developed for windows. I mean, things like, um, uh, putty, uh, a whole bunch of, um, browsers are free software and released on, on windows um, operating systems. 
So perhaps more in, in that space and things like that. Microsoft themselves could definitely get involved when it comes to open source developer tools in the, their ecosystem. They have many, you know, .NET Core and Visual Studio Code and, and many things that have been open source for a while now that they could at least, you know, and people are actually, developers are relying on them as their tool chain. So they could get involved. That's true. They, they could certainly um, um, help ensure it may, will certainly make it easier for developers to make their um, builds reproducible. Yes, that would be very nice to see. And that, again, there will be another great source of leverage there. And you know, it'd be one company getting involved and would help quite a lot of developers and users. What about at the individual level, you know, Jane developer, you know, Jane web developer and Joe game developer, you know, Linux users, people like Adam and I, our listeners out there that maybe, I mean, we, we, we take security seriously, maybe we could do better, but what can we do to help this initiative? So one thing is you can ensure that any source code you do release can be built reproducibly. So this means removing um, any timestamps from the build, ensuring that it produces the same result and in as many different environments as possible. It doesn't have any varying behavior, things along those lines. Most software would not require any of these things, but a lot of software likes, for example, likes to include the version or which is based on the current date, or they like to include the machine name that it was compiled upon and things like mm. that. So removing those sort of things is pretty much the first step. And for most software, the only step required to make, make the build reproducible. Mm. The other thing you can do is, is to occasionally check whether the code that you're running does match the source code. And uh, if it doesn't, you know, raise a red flag to whoever is producing that binary and the source code and saying, hmm, that's interesting. I, you're providing this binary and this source code. They don't seem to match. What, what gives? What gives? Would they compile their own version? Would they use this torture chamber you're mentioning? Like, what's the step they take to ensure that? I think uh, right now they would compile it themselves. That would probably be the, the easiest way of getting a single checksum rather than setting up a, um, a torture chamber because that requires you know, isolated environments, changing clocks, et cetera, and things like that. So the first step would just be just to recompile it on their own machine and see what they get and compare it with the result that's being distributed by the original source code maintainer. I feel like that's still a hurdle that most people will just be like, whatever. Maybe I'm just being agnostic against it, but I just feel like I feel like we're back to the same original problem where we said, you know, you're just verifying a checksum. Essentially, you're back to which is what you want because you want to reproduce a bill by compiling, which is the question asked kind of in the middle there where why don't we just compile the software ourselves? And that's essentially what we're doing to confirm we have the right thing. So if they're not going to do it to use it, I'm just wondering if that's if there's an easier hurdle to put in front of people to get over versus that one. I suppose one difference here is that checking the, the checksum not only helps Jane developer, it also helps when they are validating a checksum, they're also checking it for the rest of the community as well. And they're also checking on behalf of the original distributor as well. It's, it's not just helping them. And so if they built all their binaries themselves, it would be, I'm not going to, it's too strong a word, but something like it would be sort of somewhat selfish to do that because only they would reap the advantages of right. doing that recompilation. Mm. But if they recompile and check with the upstream's version of that binary, what they're doing is, is helping the community at large saying, yeah, uh, I, I've, I've confirmed that uh, this binary matches this source code at least. Yeah. Um, does anyone else want to have a go as well? So it seems a little bit more friendly in that sense. On the note it of seems the like... 
Sorry, Jerry, go ahead. Well, I'm just trying to think of like ways that we could actually get people to do something on this because I agree that like the ad hoc, you know, check a binary here, check one there type of a thing probably doesn't have much legs with people. But it seems like there could be some like community tooling built around some sort of reproducible build chaos monkey thing, somewhere like how Netflix has on their internal networks. Yeah. Where you could just like build a, a system that like pulls a random GitHub repo. Maybe it has to be language specific or something, but you know, spins up an EC2 instance, runs the build, gets the checksum, checks it against, you know, the the published or whatever. And then like as a web page with red, you know, people with red X's and green checkboxes or something where it's automated, but accessible, accessible and, you know, community effort. I don't know, Chris, is that? Indeed, uh, yeah. Well, he said recompiler earlier. That's what I was going to ask before I was going to interrupt you. But you went, it was Chris, didn't you mentioned something about recompilers, a farm or something like that earlier in the call that we, we didn't go into. That's right. Yes. Uh, I think I referred to them as rebuilders. Rebuilders. Yes. That sounds cool. Yeah, I think it's a pretty cool idea. It, it's it's quite interesting um, philosophically as well, because you would want as many different and diverse groups of people recompiling the software, because if you did have a community effort, whilst you've removed the original building on of the binaries, you've, right. you've just, if you have a central community way of doing this, you've essentially then re-centralized the confirmation of all these checksums. So you want as, as diverse a group as possible building all of the software all of the time. Yeah. For example, you might have um, you might have servers in Greenpeace's data center or the de- and the Department of Defense's. You know, people with rather different views of the world, and but if they can agree on the checksum, the final checksum of a binary, and they have different motives in this world and things like that, then you can start to say, oh, I can trust this. Yeah, cool. It'd be kind of like SETI at home, only the results would be actually useful. It would be very much like City at Home. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. Rebuilder at home. There it is. You know, somebody go out there and build that thing. And we'll all just dedicate CPU cycles, you know, at nighttime when we're sleeping to there you go. making sure all of our software is secure. That'd be amazing. I'll, I'll get on to that. <laughs> so that's, that's what I was getting. at. was like this hurdle to do the thing that, you know, does what we're trying to do with this conversation and this entire initiative and this best practice is like that last step as Jared said, is going to be less likely to be done by the general public if it's just sort of like, if I think Jared's doing it and he thinks I'm doing it, neither of us are doing it, right? And Mm. maybe a few, a small handful, and those are the people getting burnt out. Those are the people giving talks. Those are the people running meetups. Those are the people getting pulled every which way forward, and those are the people getting burnt out. And, you know, it, it doesn't scale. It doesn't sustain. We have a heartbleed issue again, or we have another issue, or we got an emissions scandal going on because you know this uh, rebuilder process is just too hard to put on the individuals of the world indeed yeah and um that's probably our um our weakest point at the moment is how we can really translate the reproducible build effort down to the end users yeah so for example providing end user tools to say oh um you you're about to install this particular binary but um we don't believe it's reproducible. So what do you want to do about it? Uh, we don't have tools for doing that yet. We don't have these um, sort of automated or at least semi-automated rebuilders yet. It's certainly in the pipeline. It's just that we are, are still not quite there as a project to, in, in terms of we'd like to move the reproducibility effort on a little bit further before we attack those angles. And there's a few unresolved questions as well. I mean, 
just for one example, say we had 10 different builders, you know, Greenpeace, Department of Defense, you, me, et cetera, all publishing their checksums for their binaries. What would be the algorithm the end user tool used? Would it say, um, oh, all 10 have to agree? Um, do nine out of 10 agree? Is that okay? Um, what if I'm a malicious actor and I upload 10,000 checksums or that are all bogus? Um, would they outvote the others? You know, there's these, there's these difficult questions that haven't really been resolved yet in terms of policy. Put it on the blockchain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> blockchain solves all problems. It's the, it's the new uh, spade card or trump card, you know, just say blockchain and then that's the answer. Well, blockchain would be part of this thing to to ensure that someone could not um, unpublish their checksums. So yes, we are actually ironically thinking of using blockchain-like technology. I'm full of good ideas today. I tell you what, this is that's two in a row. <laughs> I, th- I, feel, I feel like you should, you should join our project. Yeah, maybe I will. Well, Chris, in efforts of closing up here, what uh, what closing thoughts do you have to share? This is last chance on the show to sort of get that final person who's like, you know, I really like this idea. You know, what's the next step? What uh, what final closing thoughts do you have on this? I suppose the next, if someone's uh, vaguely interested in the project, they should totally check out our um, our website. It's got some a bunch of talks, a bit more uh, background information, some recent presentations with some more interesting gotchas about interesting things that we have surfaced uh, QA wise in the reproducible builds effort. We also have a, a mailing list and um, some interesting, as I mentioned, the the our Differscope tool. So one thing that everyone can try right now is a website called try.differscope.org, where you can upload two files and it will recursively unpack them. So if you give it two ISO files, it will um, unpack the ISO files and look for differences within, look for meaningful and human readable uh, differences between those two files. Um, that software is also available on your desktop, but this is just a, a web-based uh, interface to it. So that would be the, the next things to, to check out if someone's interested in the project. Good deal. Well, we'll certainly leave links in the show notes to reproducible-builds.org, which is the site that Chris is referring to. The talks, resources, tools, events, even the news stream you have there is great, uh, great documentation. So highly encourage those who are listening to this and interested to check that out check the show notes for that and uh chris thanks so much for joining us on the show today man really appreciate it no problem at all thank you for having me on thanks again to our guest this week chris lamb also thanks to our sponsors go cd linode and flatiron school as well as fastly our bandwidth partner check them out at fastly.com our theme music was created by Breakmaster Cylinder, and this episode was edited by Jonathan Youngblood. The best way to keep up with all things open source and software development is to subscribe to our weekly email, ChangeLaw Weekly. Head to changelaw.com weekly to subscribe. Don't miss an issue, and thanks for listening.